This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random, except for the last number of episodes. Anyway, any book from my collection would be eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 86th episode of The Quarter Bin, we're looking at DC Retroactive Wonder Woman, the 1970s, from DC Comics, cover dated September 2011. But first, a little feedback. And we start with a shout-out to my Twitter buddy Laurel, a.k.a. Mountainflower. You see, Michael Carlisle from the Crap Box of Cthulhu blog twittered about the amalgam book Dr. Strangefate. Well, Laurel replied to Michael by mentioning that she had first heard about this issue on episode 54 of this very podcast. Thank you, Laurel. I appreciate the podcast promotion. Iowa's Joe Crawford wrote in that he was excited when I said I'd be covering The Phantom Stranger in episodes 83 and 84. I have the two showcases, so I was able to read along. I think my first full Stranger story was The Secret Origins issue. Because of that series and Crisis and Who's Who, I fell in love with all the characters of the DC Universe, morts and all. On the specific issues, he said that the Phantom Stranger reminded him of an old radio character, the Mysterious Traveler. Like the Stranger, he narrated the story, but also became part of it eventually, if only sometimes for just a moment. Joe also reported that he actually enjoyed the Doctor 13 story, which is a bold comment, I was Joe, a very bold comment. Like yourself, I've been reading some Golden Age stories lately, So a six-page story was fine for me, because that seemed right for the story Len Wein was telling. He then asked if I'd read the Tales of the Unexpected 2006 series. Looks like Dr. 13 was a backup in those issues. They made a trade of it as well, Dr. 13, Architecture and Morality. No, I have not read that I was Joe, but like I said, I enjoyed the Dr. 13 stories from the New 52, So if I ever see that collection or those Tales of the Unexpected, maybe I'll check them out. And then I heard from Michael Laughlin, who wrote a treatise on the concept of magic characters in comics. He did say the email, quote, ran away from me a bit. Sorry about the length. Well, Michael, we'll see if there's just a little bit of judicious editing that can help. Dear Professor Allen, Between the upcoming Doctor Strange movie and the Phantom Stranger episodes on QBP, I've been thinking a lot about magical characters in superhero universes. To me, these characters function best when separated from the sci-fi-tinged superhero milieu, only interacting with the more traditional superheroes occasionally. Traditionally, superheroes have powers that can be used to physically overpower villains. Some powers are merely super-exaggerated physical abilities, strength, speed, or healing. Some internalized weapons, power blasts, which are basically non-lethal or sometimes lethal guns. 
Some mimic or control nature. Think animal-based or weather-based powers. With the possible exception of telepathy, almost every common superpower and super gadget is an external use of force or a method of defense. Think invisibility or shape-shifting. Magical superheroes may use their spells to physically attack their opponents, but their abilities are often internal. Most magic users acquire their skill through study and practice. Some, like Dr. Druid, specialize in one type of magic and can't branch out without a lot of work. Those that possess a mystic object have to learn how to use it effectively. And of course, every magic superhero, from Sorcerer Supreme to Sorcerer's Apprentice, has to deal with forces outside the universe. Dr. Strange and the Spectre have to protect our entire dimension from threats outside of reality that ordinary people don't even know about. True, the Justice League has to fight creatures from beyond reality, but they usually need a character with mystic ties to even understand what they're facing. Dr. Strange experienced the universe restarting all by himself. I don't know how much help Hawkeye would have been in that situation. Put an experienced witch or warlock on a team of regular superheroes, and they lose what makes them unique. Sometimes they just shoot mystic lasers at the bad guys. That's boring. But not nearly as bad as when their spells are ineffective against the big threat. You can beat the devil, but you're helpless against a killer robot? I'm already reading a story about people who shoot lightning out of their fingers and grow 50 feet tall. My suspension of disbelief can only take so much. Then again, they could have the opposite problem and become deus ex machinas. Not all magic users are story breakers, of course. Scarlet Witch can be. But her hex power is more limited than, say, Doctor Strange's mastery of the mystic arts. But the second Zatanna turns an enemy's gun to butterflies, you wonder why the rest of the JLA even bothers to show up. Magical superheroes are great, however. Between Doctor Strange, Doctor Fate, the Spectre, Zatanna, Phantom Stranger, Tim Hunter, John Constantine, and more, several of my favorite characters belong in that category. So thank you for reading these stories, and I look forward to your future podcasts. Thank you, Michael. That only rambled a little bit, to be honest. I appreciate this. Very insightful stuff about the, the different types of powers and types of magics that are used in comics. I hadn't necessarily put it together quite like that before. Good stuff. Really appreciate that feedback. And on last issue, covering Mars number one, there was a lot of Twitter activity about first comics in general and what an interesting publisher they were back in the day, along with Comico, Eclipse, and Now Comics. I was Joe Crawford, mentioned before, reported reading Grendel and Robotech from Comico, Christian, and Justice's First Dawn. Added a few more to the list, like Badger, Dreadstar, Dynamo Joe, American Flag, John Sable, E-Man, Warp, Star Slayer, and Grimjack. It was a, a fun bit of social media nostalgia. I also mentioned in that episode that a Mars collection is out there, published maybe seven or eight years ago. Well, Mark Sweeney from the I'm the Gun podcast and blog found a copy in the library of his employer, the Rhode Island School of Design, although based on their crazy filing system, 
Listen to recent short buck showcases for the details. But based on their uh, interesting filing system, I suspect he'll never be able to find that book again. So if you did check it out, Mark, let me know how the rest of the series held up. When I put the preview post up for that episode, Trevor Williams talked about how much he liked the Mars series back in the day and tagged the creators, saying he had uh, the privilege of meeting them a few times and found them kind and generous. Trevor's from the general Baltimore area where Mark Wheatley and Mark Hempel are based these days. And one of those creators, Mark Wheatley, found his post and said it was cool that we were covering Mars. And I checked out his Facebook page. It seemed that he wasn't all that crazy because, you know, sometimes creators are a little crazy. And now Mark Wheatley and I are Facebook friends. He even wished me a happy birthday. So Mark Wheatley, you have joined the likes of John Ostrander and Max Allen Collins on the list of comics creators that we've had positive social media interactions with. A lot of the above-mentioned folk also retweeted or shared the link to that last episode, as did Ed Moore from the Mighty Thorcast and other podcasts available through Teal Productions. Also, Pat from the Longbox Crusade podcast and Paul O'Connor from the similarly titled blog, The Longbox Graveyard, also shared. So thanks to them, thanks everybody for all of your feedback. It's time now to jump back in time about five years so we can jump back in time more than 40 years. So let's talk DC Retroactive Wonder Woman of the 1970s. But first, let's talk DC Retroactive in general. DC Retroactive was a line of one-shot comic book titles released in the lead-up to the start of the new 52 initiative in the fall of 2011. This event revisited three broad periods, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, of six of the company's main characters, the Trinity, plus Flash, Green Lantern, and the JLA. So six titles, three decades, 18 books total. Two more of these, by the way, are in the Quarterbin database. These one-shots featured different characters with a nostalgic version of their sort of most representative aspects during these decades. DC also brought back some of their most relevant creative teams. So Rich Buckler, Kerry Bates, Jerry Conway, Mike W. Barr, Norm Brayfogel, among many, many others, all were part of the event. DC Comics Retroactive Wonder Woman, the 70s, like all of the retroactive books, had a cover price of $4.99, meaning I acquired this at just a smidge under a 95% discount. I don't think I've ever covered a book with a higher cover price than this. There may have been another $4.99 book, but I can't think of one. We have covered $4.95 cover-priced prestige format books, but this may be the most expensive book we've covered on this podcast. The cover, by Jay Bone, shows Wonder Woman standing in front of a three-way mirror, like a mirror in a dressing room, and in that mirror are three different reflections, So we actually have four different takes on the character. Two are different versions of the white jumpsuit uniform, 
and two are of the more traditional Linda Carter style of look. And all of these Wonder Women have different hairstyles too. It's a great design for a cover, a great idea for a cover, but I have to admit I'm not in love with the way that J-Bone draws Wonder Woman's face. I don't have the artistic language to describe what doesn't work for me about this, but I just don't dig that aspect of the cover. Like all of their retroactive books, this issue has two stories in it, a new one set in the particular decade, in this case the early 1970s, sort of told in the style of stories from that time frame, as well as a reprint story that is actually from the 1970s. And we'll get to those stories right after this. Are you tired of fanboy comics podcasts? Looking for a show that really appreciates the comic storytelling medium and how it works? A show that looks at comics from any genre and anywhere in the world? Comparing the storytelling techniques of different creators and different comics cultures? With manga, newspaper strips, European comics, and more discussed alongside mainstream U.S. comics. A show that includes talks with well-known creators like James Robinson and Dan Jurgens and with less famous creators that you really should know. And hey, we'll even critique your comic. If you're looking for that show, then you're looking for Deconstructing Comics, and it's right here at deconstructingcomics.com. Also available in iTunes and on Stitcher. This is Tim saying check out our show every Monday. That's Deconstructing Comics. And we're back. The first story in this issue, the new story is Savage Ritual, and was written by Dennis O'Neill with art by Jay Bowen. We begin with a post-mod, shorts and bustier, red, white, blue, and gold, fully-powered Wonder Woman, parachuting towards Paradise Island. For a moment, stunned disbelief, her mind roils. Am I dreaming, hallucinating? But she knows that she's sentient, awake, and witnessing the inconceivable. What she witnesses is Paradise Island sinking underwater. The rented plane is flying away, leaving her with only one choice. Diving under the water, she sees, yes, something. It doesn't look like a boat or submarine. It doesn't even look man-made. Some kind of spacecraft? She enters the vessel, which has certain TARDIS-like properties. It's gigantic. I must have passed through some kind of portal? Have I traveled in time, or space, or both? A floating cube accuses her of sinning gravely, telling her that she must redeem herself. You must perform three tasks or deals gravely. She declines, politely, and asks the cube if it sank Paradise Island. Through a window in the vessel, she sees Paradise Island on the bottom of the ocean and a huge blade is about to dissect the entire island. Think James Bond Death Trap or Pit and the Pendulum, but on a city-splitting scale. Wonder Woman is told that she must perform three tasks to redeem herself and to restore the island. However, she will not perform them as Wonder Woman, but as she was when she committed the sin, as... Diana Prince. 
Suddenly she finds herself Maud again, black turtleneck under a white jumpsuit, and powerless. One of the outfits I wore after I renounced my powers, my heritage, she explains, before I realized who I really am. She asks why the cube cares about this brief period of her life, but she doesn't get an answer. Instead, she gets herself sent through a portal into an empty, barren landscape. She hears horses' hooves and is approached by a red-headed woman dressed as a knight, bearing a sword. We jump to Paradise Island as Queen Hippolyta watches, along with an aged Amazon who serves as the Queen's scientific advisor, I guess? The chief scientist has determined that their visitor is from a civilization far advanced of even theirs. The visitor emptied out the archives. Thus, it knows all of our history and science. Meanwhile, the woman on the horse swings her blade at Diana, giving her a nasty cut across her upper arm. As this woman, who Diana later concludes is Joan of Arc, turns to face her again, she uses her martial arts training to remove the woman from atop her horse badly shaking the saint, but not seriously hurting her. Diana takes Joan's sword, and the ground opens up and swallows her, and she splashes down into a rushing river. Never felt current so strong. The Amazon warrior version of me could reach the shore easily. But Diana Prince struggles to even reach the nearest boulder. But she does, and then hopscotches herself to safety except that safety leads her to face a giant. I'm going to say 20 feet tall. She dodges his attacks, but just as she tries a David and Goliath rock toss, she notices a butterfly. The same butterfly that has been with her all along. She also realizes that all of the elements here, the giant Joan of Arc, the swinging blade bearing down on Paradise Island, All of those images are from history and literature. So she launches the rock right into the butterfly. The mechanical butterfly, as it turns out. The mechanical butterfly that was monitoring all of her actions. And then Queen Hippolyta arrives, reporting that Paradise Island returned to its proper place. Along with the science leader, Lady They enter the alien craft and determine that the circuitry controlling it was random. There was neither plan nor cognition, the scientist reports. Diana concludes that that means they didn't need redeeming after all. Are you certain, her mother, Queen Hippolyta, asks? And Diana answers, no. The end. So as my podcasting buddy and fellow podcaster... Trennis Magnus would ask, what did I think of this? I'm going to be honest. This was not as good as I'd hoped it would be. Denny O'Neill is a legitimate comic book legend. Because what he brought to comic book writing was depth. His stories were different from everything else going on in DC Comics back in the early 70s. But that depth that the best of his stories written in this era had, it just wasn't there. It's not a bad story, per se. I I have issues with it, as you'll hear. But I've read worse Wonder Woman stories over the years, that's for sure. But this one was just a bit 
on the thin side. You may have sensed that the ending came on us really quickly, and the resolution was uninspiring. Let's go with that. There was a Star Trek vibe to it, a, a riff on the idea of V'ger technology, I guess designed for good, having gone off in a different direction. And it wasn't boring. The story moved at a decent pace. There were high points in there. But I wanted it to have more substance. I wanted it to be a more important story. You're here on the verge of the New 52. All of these characters are about to be rebooted. Do something big. Do something memorable at a minimum. But the more I thought about these retroactive books, I was struck by something. DC had a bunch of stories coming to an end in July and August 2011, when these 18 issues were coming out. Lots of creators wrapping up Flashpoint stories. And of course, they had a bunch of creative teams, often different new creative teams, working on getting the new 52 up and going. And editorial was totally focused on either wrapping up Flashpoint and or ramping up to the new 52. These were classic writers, classic artists, and they were available because they weren't otherwise working for DC. They weren't working on the important books. And I don't think editorial paid much attention to these either. Let the veterans do their thing, because these books just aren't that important. I think that's what was going on inside DC. And I think that's how so much fell through the cracks in this story. And by cracks, I mean gaping plot holes. For example, the idea of trials for Wonder Woman is a long-time trope for the character, to some extent going back to the origin story on Paradise Island, the contest. So that idea worked in this type of story. But if you're promising me three trials in this story, shouldn't the story have... I don't know. Three trials? Because you may have noticed this. This three-trial story came to a very abrupt quick end after the second trial. It felt rushed at the end, and I think that's because it was rushed at the end. Whether there was a miscommunication about the page count that O'Neill thought he had, I don't know. But somehow, he only gave himself room for two trials. That's hard to not notice. The ending is just so blah. And then this thing about not needing redemption, but maybe we still do. I don't know what to make of those last few panels, the last few lines. That's where the punch is supposed to be, the theme stated, the point made. But this just sort of ended with a whimper. The interior art, like the cover, was by Jay Bone. And like the cover, I did not dig most of the faces on most of the characters, they were just distorted a bit. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. But the action, the storytelling, the staging of some of the individual panels, the the alien spaceship vessel, all of that was really good. There are a couple of great martial art moves that Diana has, flying kicks and that sort of thing. And they're great, they're fun, they're energetic. But every panel also has at least one face in it. So I was constantly reminded of what it was about the art that I didn't like. So there was this sense of constant reinforcement of what, to me, were the negative aspects of the story. 
though there were glimpses of interesting stuff here. Diana without powers, fighting historical warriors. There's a story there. There's definitely a story there. You can see an editor getting that pitch from O'Neill and greenlighting it. That should definitely work. And the individual fight scenes do sort of work. But as a piece, altogether, it just comes up short. I mean, literally, it comes up one trial short. One more thing that is good is that that butterfly. It does appear on just about every page if you flip back through. Sometimes in multiple panels on a page. So if you're looking for a clue that something oddball is going on here, there is a clue right there. But how we go from destroying the butterfly to ending the test, that is never made clear. I do give O'Neill credit for one thing regarding the ending, regarding the number of trials, is that he does hang a lantern on that. Diana and Hippolyta can't really figure out what the third trial was either. So I'm in good company as a reader, as that plot point eluded the writer and the characters too. So it's a story that's disappointing more than anything else. It's not bad. It's just not as well thought out as I'd like. It's not as well edited as I'd like. It needed another pass. I'm not exactly sure what I wanted from the retroactive half of this issue, but this just wasn't it. There were glimpses of what I wanted, aspects of what I wanted. But the phrase that keeps coming to me is that it just falls short. All right, it's time to take a break. I need to clear my palate, shake this one off. And when we get back, it's the second story of the issue. Beautiful as Aphrodite. Wise as Athena. Stronger than Hercules. Swifter than Mercury. Explore the 75-year history of the Amazon princess with Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, a monthly podcast available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at wonderwomanwarriorforpeace.wordpress.com. And we're back. One more time. The second story, The Fist of Flame, was written by Denny O'Neill with art by Dick Giordano. This story first appeared in Wonder Woman 201 from the first volume cover dated July-August 1972. Like we said before, these retroactive books all had one story in the style of the particular era and one reprint of an actual story from that era. So there's a nice opportunity for compare and contrast. We start on a fine spring morning. Diana Prince and I Ching stroll through the city. Diana is wearing white go-go style boots and a pretty short white dress. They visit Johnny Double's office up the rickety stairs, but they find his door ajar. Johnny, it's me, Diana. They find the place a shamble and Johnny gone and a smear of blood on the floor. Suddenly, a closet door crashes open and the room is filled with danger. Two Asian assassins storm at our pair of heroes, but they're overmatched by the gal in the white dress and the blind old guy with the cane. Both killers perish in the battle, one of them kicked out of the window by Diana. One lives long enough to gasp out, Fist, 
of flame. I Ching identifies the Fist of Flame as a giant ruby said to drive men mad with greed, and the assassins as members of a mountain man sect devoted to worshipping it. After a long, grueling session with the law, Diana is worn out. Answering these questions has left me exhausted. Later that evening, she receives a note telling her to get the Fist of Flame if she wants to keep Johnny Double alive. Diana, realizing that she doesn't have the liquid funds necessary to chase the Fist of Flame, sells her boutique to raise money for the trip. And that evening, an airliner heaves itself into the darkening sky. Among the passengers, an old Oriental and a young woman. On the plane, Diana and I Ching see a beautiful and strangely familiar blonde woman on the same flight as themselves. I Ching dismisses this, but Diana sees the mysterious beauty again when she leaves the plane, and again in a tiny hamlet nestled at the foot of a mountain. It's driving me nuts. I can't recall who she is. Along with a guide, the pair head up the mountain in the face of a raging blizzard, winds that tear at flesh like barbs. They struggle, but manage to locate the Flame Fist cultist's mountain in a pocket of sweetness nestled in the harsh countryside, a valley of warmth and beauty. They actually see the gem itself embedded in the forehead of a Buddha statue. Johnny's life may depend on what we do in the next hour, Diana declares. So let's not waste another second. Diana fights her way past the cultists and their highly trained guards and grabs the gem. She feels the gem's beauty in her very blood. I can't think of anything else. It's putting a spell on me. Enraptured by the hot, fiery depths in her palm, Diana is unaware of the sleek figure swooping from above. And this figure attacks her from behind. As she falls into unconsciousness, Diana recognizes her assailant, the Catwoman, who was the woman in disguise on the plane. She, of course, is also in search of the gem, but before she can slink away, she is mesmerized herself by the Fist of Flame's hypnotic power and captured. Both women awake in another chamber, suspended above a flaming pit by ropes and sort of harness-type contraptions. They've been supplied with swords with which to fight each other. The cultists tell them that the survivor of their battle will serve them, and the one who does not survive, well, that one doesn't survive. As Diana sums it up, great choice, death or slavery. I can either kill the Catwoman or die myself. Catwoman's actions reveal her take on the situation. I hope you don't take this personally, miss. I would prefer to let you live, she says, swinging the sword towards Diana. But I've grown terribly fond of my own life over the years. Diana manages to save both herself and Catwoman by cutting her opponent's lines, simultaneously grabbing her wrist. Together, although badly outnumbered, they take out the guards and henchmen. Diana uses her mad judo skills to take down the leader, both defeating and disgracing him. The women snatch the fist of flame and decide that they'll decide later who gets it. They have to free Ai Ching, and they make their way out of the cultist's temple. Along the way, Catwoman tells them that she had hired Johnny Double to find the Fist of Flame, but a rival gang led by Ai Ching's daughter Lu Shan learned of her plans. Abruptly, Diana, Catwoman, and Ai Ching phase out of their world and rematerialize 
and the world of Newan, where they look up to see Fairfield and the Grey Mauser standing before them. The end. So what did I think of this one? First, Catwoman's uniform is crazy, and strangely a little reminiscent of one of Zatanna's otter looks. She has light blue tights, a blue-black bathing suit, long black gloves, and boots and mask trimmed in red. It is my honest and actual opinion that I have never seen this Catwoman outfit before, and as many outfits as she's had over the years, this one just does not work for me. Now, overall, the art was great. I mentioned that Jay Bone did a good job with the action scenes in that first story, but I gotta say, he's outmatched at almost every turn by Dick Giordano here. The storytelling, the pacing, the action scenes, the different settings, it was all professional and just contributed a lot to this story. Now, I have to say at this point that an article I read about the Wonder Woman stories from this era noted that this was some of Giordano's most dynamic work, pointing out that he was sharing studio space with Neil Adams around that time, and opining that perhaps Adams did some uncredited layout work or thumbnails, or maybe they were just sharing photo references to get ideas. Certainly not swiping, nothing that clear-cut, but there may be a behind-the-scenes assist from Neil Adams in this issue. And as good as Giordano is on his own, that may explain why the art in this is as good as it is. I have to mention one more specific part about the art early in the issue, when Diana is in that short dress. The section is maybe six pages, but she gets more attention paid to her legs in those pages than the entire rest of the issue combined. There are kicks and twirls and spins and bends that reveal that she's wearing white shorts or maybe white panties under the short white dress. Let's just say there are a lot of podcasters who at this point would mention that Diana is sort of hot. Despite her lack of powers, her Amazonian heritage is still evident. In terms of the story, I pretty much dug this. There were many reasons why Wonder Woman was depowered during this era, and some of those were not good reasons. But given that as the context that O'Neill was working with in this story, it is a great type of story for that context. There's a mystery, a globe-spanning adventure, a quest, evil cultists, and a named known villain. Catwoman was a really good choice for this story, in that it involves stealing a huge jewel, and in this contest, she is an equal match for a depowered Diana. The story passes the Bechdel test, decades before that was even a thing, and I think that's worth mentioning. If this were a short box showcase episode, if I were here with Emily, at this point I would turn the episode over to her to talk about the wise oriental mentor stereotype. Remember, the story calls I Ching an oriental. That's their choice of words, not mine. So I simply acknowledge this problematic aspect of the story, of the character, and move on. Like I said, I liked the private eye type of story, the global adventurer aspects. All of that worked. I'm not terribly familiar with Wonder Woman stories from this era, except by reputation. But this was solid stuff. I like that we see that she does not have unlimited wealth 
One of the regular features of modern vampire stories is the notion that given a number of centuries, one can accumulate quite a bit of wealth. I guess Diana has not been in man's world long enough for that to occur. Plus, she's a good-hearted person not interested in wealth accumulation, I suppose. She did own a retail operation, I guess, which she sells in this issue to finance her trip to capture the Fist of Flame and rescue Johnny. I like that the practicalities of being a hero are dealt with here. I like it when these real-world practicalities affect our characters, and it's perfect for Diana at this point, who has given up her claims of divinity and all that. For the first time, she's dealing with the realities of finances. And I like that. I'm not sure that we learned who left the note in Diana's apartment. I think it was probably Catwoman. That center on this quest. Maybe that'll come out specifically next issue. If it wasn't revealed in the story and I just missed it in their conversation. The only thing that struck me as really odd in terms of putting this story in a reprint book, of selecting this story for the retroactive book, was that it ended with sort of a to-be-continued. But that can be forgiven, because most of what is not wrapped up here is the subplots. And we're really just table-setting for the next story. It's not a, a true cliffhanger, in the sense that our main story does come to a definite and final conclusion. But I do wonder how they picked the reprint stories for these retroactive books. Were they looking for the best story? The best story that hadn't been reprinted often? The best standalone story? (laughs) The story with the lowest royalty payments associated? I mean, I wonder what the selection process was. If it's as loose as the editing process was on the new stories, going by the one in this issue at least, it could have been nothing more than total random selection. Maybe it was just somebody who really loved that particular Catwoman costume and wanted it to be in the public eye just one more time. Whatever the process was, it ended up being not too bad a choice. The verdict on Wonder Woman Retroactive 1970s. Look, it's two full stories, and it's marked down by 95%. What do you think I'm going to say? When it comes right down to it, That's almost a guarantee that a book will be worth a quarter. Now, if it had been just the first story, this conclusion may have been close to the borderline. The problems I had with that one were so fundamental to the story, they're a little hard to overlook. But the second one was very solid. Had far more high points and far fewer low points. So this comic, taken together, the two stories as one issue, is a solid quarter bin deal. Now, I do have one issue that I wanted to run by you, my lovely listeners. I do have two more retroactive books in the database, and even though I did enjoy this book, I was not, like I said, totally blown away by it. It's really the quantity over quality, the two full stories that tipped the balance into the uh, definite quarter bin deal category. If the other two that I have are going to be as meh, especially in the first story, if that's sort of the vibe of the retroactive books, I'm not sure I want to keep those in the database. I may just take the chance, pull them out of the database, and read them myself. 
I don't know if I've been clear about this before, the way the Quarterbin podcast works, but I do not read the books before putting them into the database. If they're a book I get from the store, I either decide it goes in the current reading pile or it goes in the Quarterbin podcast pile. Now, there certainly are stories that I've read before, but that's years and years ago. I don't buy a book, read it, and then decide whether it goes in the database, in other words. Because I want the experience of reading the book to be fresh when I read it for the podcast. So I really am curious as to what your experiences were with the other retroactive books. Whether your overall experiences with the event were good or bad or meh. That'll help me decide whether I take the chance and keep the other two books in the database. Like I say, my experience with this one was overall a net positive, but it wasn't overwhelmingly so. Anyway, that wraps up my coverage of Wonder Woman Retroactive 1970s, bringing episode 86 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In episode 87, we're looking at some contest-winning books. We ran a Facebook and Twitter contest about a month ago as I record this, and the lucky numbers provided by Radio Free Asgard's Tom Harris were the ones selected. Those numbers translated into books for the next couple of episodes and another episode after that. And those upcoming books are the 1987 De Mateus and Giffen miniseries Dr. Fate. Next episode, episode 87, is issues 1 and 2, and the episode after that, issues 3 and 4. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode Wonder Woman, like I said, the entire DC retroactive event, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.